you need a high volume of of training. So you know that eighty percent of the high volume training to get that that large increase in mitochondrial volume. But getting that high intensity interval training, you know, around about one hundred percent of VO two max and and even above then that seems to be more important for increasing mitochondrial function. And, and we've tended to see greater improvements in mitochondrial function with that, that, um, that level three type training. That Triathlon Show 250. Hey. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Professor David Bishop. Professor Bishop is a world leader in muscle exercise physiology and has published more than 250 publications. He leads the Skeletal Muscle and Training Research Group at the Victoria University in Melbourne, Australia which uh, has a focus of examining how exercise, genes, and diet interact to regulate skeletal muscle adaptations and uh, to translate this new knowledge at a cellular and mitochondrial level into recommendations for improving human performance. And one of the main topics that we really get into today is discussing volume and intensity, the adaptations of each, and uh, how you can balance the two uh, adequately to get the best of both worlds and which one might be more important than the other. So we'll get into that right after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And uh, we're looking forward to having founder Andy Blow back for another hydration episode uh, at some point quite soon. So I would encourage you to send in any questions that you want to get asked or topics that you want us to specifically touch on regarding hydration, electrolytes, and cramping to my email michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k and we can tackle them when we have andy back on the podcast as you know if you listen to for example episode 49 with him or any of the newer episodes he's super knowledgeable in this area so i'm always super keen to to discuss with him and hear all that he has to say about this topic you can check out precision hydration's electrolyte products and get a free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com and you can get 15% off your entire order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. Also, if you're a new customer and you've never used Precision Hydration before, you can get your first box or tube for free with the code thattriathlonshow, all one word, all caps. Big thanks also to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and even casual day-to-day eyewear and prescription glasses. So check out all they have to offer in any of those categories on their website and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS20. As we are now in 2020, perhaps you might want to check if your all your equipment is in order or if it's something that uh, needs replacing, it's broken, that happens. Wetsuits, for example... 
If you're in that position, definitely consider Roka because they spend so much resources on making sure that their products are the best in their categories. The amount of research and development that they do is really admiring. So I highly encourage that you check that out. With the wetsuits, for example, the Arms Up technology is a famous example of how Roka are super innovative to make their products the best that they can be. Check them out on roca.com and the promo code is TTS20. Without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Professor David Bishop. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, David. Uh, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks, um, thanks for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to have you. Why don't you start by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background and your research interests? Yeah, so I think my, um, like a lot of people, a bit of a varied background. So I initially started out as a, a physical education teacher. And so, you know, teaching physical education in primary school and, and high school. And then I decided to go back and do a little bit more study. So I ended up doing a master's and then a, a PhD. And after that, I guess my first job was working at the Western Australian Institute of Sport. So that was working directly with elite athletes. Some of the athletes were, you know, kayak athletes who went to the um, Sydney 2000 Olympics as well as hockey players and also water polo team and uh, a few other team sports as as well. So that was a a great sort of introduction to working with elite athletes. And then then from there, I moved over to a a university position. And so since then, so that's... um, Gosh, nearly 20 years ago. So since then, been doing research broadly on the, I guess, um, trying un- trying to understand and also optimise adaptations to training and, and mostly more around the lines of, um, I guess, team sports, so intermittent performance, but also endurance performance. Yeah, and it's that's definitely from the endurance performance perspective that I know of you and your research so i didn't really know that you have done that much in team sport but if we're sticking to the endurance theme what are the general things that happen the adaptations that happen when we train on a physiological level that we're looking for generally speaking yeah and i think that's it's a really good point and it's one of the you know the the big challenges in i guess you know doing what you're doing being an athlete or a coach but also in in doing research is that there's a lot going on so you know the you know you got your muscles and blood and your heart and brain all those sorts of things are are adapting and i guess as a researcher you tend to you need to try and focus in a little bit so most of my research has been on specifically skeletal muscle adaptation so looking at how their muscle adapts to training and to different types of training prescriptions. And I guess in the in the last 10 years, or actually originally before that, a lot of it was on pH regulation and, uh, you know, preventing lactate buildup in the muscles. But more recently in the last 10 years, that, that focus has switched to mitochondria, so, that, you know, the energy powerhouses of the, of the muscle. And what's happened with the mitochondria? If uh, somebody new listening to to this that might not know what the mitochondria do and uh, what they are important for, can you can you explain them in a little bit more detail and why they are important? Yeah, so I think you know whenever there's a you know something in the general press, you'll you'll see the the mitochondria referred to as the 
the energy powerhouses of the muscle. And so the, the mitochondria is what's generating most of the ATP or energy that we're using. So, you know, while we're sitting here talking, or obviously there's a, a baseline energy expenditure. And so the mitochondria are working hard to supply all of the energy to support just your, your basal metabolic um, energy requirements. And then as you um, do exercise, endurance exercise, and your energy demands increase, the mitochondria are working hard to supply that extra energy that you need to perform the endurance tasks. And when we, we're training, we're looking to uh, improve the effectiveness or uh, increase the amount of mitochondria. What, what are the adaptations that we're looking for on that side? Yeah, no, you're asking some great questions. And that's another – so there, there's a lot of different mitochondrial adaptations that that can occur. So I guess in in simplistic terms, we can look at the content. So just the – that refers to – the I guess we can say the, the the amount of mitochondria that you have in the muscles, and we'll probably talk about that later. So that that seems to be important for not only health but endurance performance. So in particular, having more mitochondria seems to be related to a, a greater ability to utilize fat when you're exercising. But we can also improve the the function of the mitochondria. So the the amount of energy that the that the mitochondria can produce and we've seen that those two are not necessarily um, one in the same so you can get improvements in mitochondrial function without improvements in in mitochondrial content and I guess there's also if we want to talk about efficiency there's also how quickly the the mitochondria adapt to a metabolic perturbation so you know most people would feel that, you know, when you start exercising, you have what's called that oxygen debt in that your muscles aren't like a car in that when you turn on the engine, you're getting all the, the fuel that you need to, to supply the, the energy to drive the, drive the motor. But with, uh, with a human being, it takes a little bit of a what takes a few minutes for the aerobic metabolism to, to ramp up. And so that's also related to the mitochondria. And with, diff- with training, one of the adaptations that we'd like to see is that the the mitochondria react more rapidly and increase their production production of energy when you start to exercise in terms of the you mentioned there that the mitochondrial function and content they're not one and the same are there specific types of training that lead more to an adaptation in in one than the other or is that that's still an unknown what why they are not one and the same yeah, I, th- I think this podcast is going to be full of lots of unknowns, but we've definitely seen that different adaptations. So we, and you'll you'll see um, sometimes it, maybe it can be confusing for some people. So there is, you know, there's some debate amongst different scientists working in this area. But with our research, we've tended to see that the very high intensity exercise, so close to VO2 max and above, seems to be better at increasing the the mitochondrial function and we've seen that the increasing the the amount of mitochondria that seems to be more strongly related to the volume of training and uh, i guess this leads us to the main questions for today that's actually a big set of questions we both have the list in front of us but 
the topic of volume and intensity, uh, you recently published a, a discussion uh, paper about the how the two relate and in term and the adaptations to mitochondrial content uh, in terms of what you get out of volume and intensity. So can you can you discuss what you did in that paper and analyzing the the current state of research a bit more? Yeah, sure. So I think you're talking about we just had a. Uh what's called a crosstalk debate, which is a, a nice initiative of the Journal of Physiology. And so what it does, it gets a couple of, you know, different, some prominent researchers who have different views on a topic and gets them to debate the, um, you know, different sides of, of, of a particular topic. And so we were arguing that the content is, is, more, is more important. And from our research and also when we look at the, the body of research as a whole, the greatest increases in in mitochondrial content are, are typically seen with the highest volumes of training. So, and I think you know, in some ways, the nice thing about that as well is that you know it aligns with what a what a, you know what a, elite athletes do. So, there's not too many elite athletes, I would think that aren't doing high volumes of training at certain times during the week. And, you know, we were talking before we got on, you'd just done two, two and a half hours of, of cycling. And so I think that that matches up with probably part of the reason why at different times during the microcycle and macrocycle that high volumes of training are important. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's definitely uh, the, the crosstalk that I was referring to exactly. And, uh, so why do you think if content might be the more important in terms of content versus function of the mitochondria, uh, do you have any idea why that is? We don't. And again, a great question. And I think with all of the interesting thing with the mitochondria is, uh, you know, they're producing energy. So I guess the, you know, the, the assumption is that having more and better mitochondria is likely to improve insure, improve endurance performance, but the it's probably it's difficult to find really strong evidence for that. And I think it's also it's probably because most of the best athletes don't give muscle biopsy, so we don't actually know a lot about their their mito, their mitochondrial content or function. But I think it makes sense. And I think if you also if you think about the where the mitochondria are. Having more mitochondria and having them closer to the where the energy needs to go, so in terms of muscle contraction, closer to the actin and, and myosin filaments, then probably having more mitochondria can be a benefit to get the energy closer to where it needs to go. Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I had not thought about that. Um, do you think that the relationship between uh, training volume and uh, mitochondrial content uh, adaptations or increases in mitochondrial content is sort of linear or is it linear but only up until a certain point or is there some other relationship there that uh, is more difficult to explain yeah it's interesting when we looked at um so not just our studies but the the studies out there and also animal studies and as well as human studies we didn't really see any evidence of a of a plateau, so I think there. My 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 gut feeling is that greater volumes of training 
will lead to greater improvements or greater increases in in mitochondrial content. And they didn't actually measure mitochondrial content, but there's some really great studies by um, um, by Hickson back in the 19, 1980s, and they looked at changes in VO2 max over a you know, 10 or 12-week um, training period, and they had quite high volumes of training. And they also didn't see any plateau in VO2 max after that time. So, I mean, obviously VO2 max will plateau at some stage, but I think that there has to be a point where where it will plateau. But I, I think for um, for most of the stuff I've, I've seen, the, the volumes that have been tested, there does seem to be a linear relationship between training volume and increases in mitochondrial content. Mm, yeah. And what association, if any, have you found between intensity and changes in mitochondrial content specifically? We're still talking about content and not function. Yeah, and that so that was part of the the cross talk. And so when we're talking about that, I mean, studies with high intensity training have definitely seen improvements in in mitochondrial content. But what we don't see is any relationship between the intensity and the changes in mitochondrial content. So if you do higher intensity training, we don't see any evidence that that will lead to greater increases in mitochondrial content than um than lower intensity training so definitely you know in some of the you know marty gabala in canada's done some great work so it is possible to get improvements in in mitochondrial content with um high intensity training but our interpretation of the evidence is that you need to get the greatest improvements in mitochondrial content you need quite high volumes of training so can you explain that again? Uh, because I didn't quite get that when you, you're saying that uh, yeah, you sure. can get mitochondrial content with intensity, but at the same time, higher intensity or more intensity. Did you refer to higher intensity or more intensity there doesn't uh, give you more increases in mitochondrial content? Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, to put it another way, so Marty has shown and others and others have shown as well that if you do some sprint interval training so you know all out sprints you can get increases in in mitochondrial content as um measured in the muscle but you could also do get similar so you know the sprint interval training is all out so it might be you know 150 to 200 percent of your vo2 max if you do some sort of high intensity interval training you can also get increase some increases in mitochondrial content and similar to the the much higher intensity sprint interval training. So I think if once you get, we don't see a, a linear relationship. So if you went from, you know, 80%, 100% VO2 max up to 150% VO2 max, we don't see greater increases in, in, in mitochondrial content. We do see, you do see some small, you can see some small sort of a 15 to 20% increase in, in mitochondrial content. But it tends to be less than, you know, with some of the very high volumes of training, we can see upwards of 50% increase in mitochondrial content. Mm, right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. What about uh, in terms of the intensity level? Something I've talked uh, and interviewed uh, uh, Professor Paul Larson quite a bit a few times and yep. uh, and read his uh, book and uh, and articles about high-intensity interval training. And he seems to be... Uh, uh, 
to be prescribing mostly or, or trying to to hammer down that if you are going to do high intensity interval training trying to get to 90 percent of vo2 max or 95 percent of vo2 max that's when you really might get the most bang for your buck of your intervals and trying to design your intervals in a way that you'll reach that level might be optimal do, do you agree with that when it comes to intensity or what's your view yeah i think you know my my view and i think it's consistent with the the literature is there's not one magic intensity and i think you know probably what our research supports more than anything else is is some of the you know the real, the great work by Stephen Sealer on the the polarized training concept and i you know i think so our our research like i said i think it, it fits in nicely with that concept in that there's a there's a definite role in terms of mitochondria of very high volumes of low to moderate intensity training to get that volume stimulus. But there's definitely also a place for, for high intensity interval training. I'd say if I was going to do high intensity interval training, I'd, I'd agree with Paul. I think, you know, pretty close to VO2 max is probably where you want to be with your, with your high intensity interval training. We've also seen, though, different adaptations with sprint interval training so i think you know the high intensity interval training would be i don't know you know somewhere between intervals of probably you know one to six minutes um but if you're doing you know the sprint interval training which is close to all out for you know around about 20 to 30 seconds and then um longer recoveries you know up to around about four minutes or so i think there's also a place for that so i think you know with and this is is also consistent with the way uh, athletes train. Yeah, not to. I wouldn't think there'd be too many athletes that would only be doing high volume training, or only be doing high intensity interval training, or only be doing sprint interval training. And I think you know, just like um, I, th- I like to think of it, in, you know, in terms of the the diet pyramid, where you've got you know different types of um, nutrition that's important. I think it's the same with training and those different types of training all have their role and probably the big challenge is trying to get the the balance right and how to to put those components together. Yeah. And you mentioned Steven Seiler there he's uh, another past guest on the podcast so the listeners will be very familiar with with his work on uh, the 8020 uh, split in terms of sessions in his original research anyway that 80 percent of sessions are performed at a, a relatively low intensity uh, below or at lt1 and 20 percent higher than that and in terms of time he claims that up to 90 percent of the time is spent in in the low intensity zone in elite athletes do you think is there any uh, research that backs up those claims on uh, the physiological and cellular and mitochondrial level I think, um, we, I mean, we definitely want to do some of that research. Most of the research has been at a performance level. So there was a um, there was a paper a couple of years ago kind of backing up some of Stephen's ideas where they had one group do kind of a, a mixed sort of training with it reasonably, reasonably evenly distributed across level one, level two, and level three. And there was another group that did the more the polarised training and that group got greater improvements in in performance from a a cellular level i think you know i've actually got a phd student who's about to to um embark on some of that project but there hasn't been 
I'm not aware of any research looking at the cellular adaptations. As I said, I think the the closest you can get is if we look across the the literature, and at, at least from the the mitochondria, I think you know, our research 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 would suggest that there's a different role for those different types of training and different mitochondrial adaptations. So I think our work does kind of align with the idea that you need a high volume of, of training. So, you know, that 80% of the high volume training to get that, that large increase in mitochondrial volume, but getting that high intensity interval training, you know, around about 100% of VO2 max and, and even above, then that seems to be more important for increasing mitochondrial function. And, and we've tended to see greater improvements in mitochondrial function with that, that, um, that level three type training. Mm, yep. And what about, uh, that leads us to the moderate uh, intensity training. So uh, your classic tempo or threshold type workouts, is there anything we can say about that type of training and how the, the adaptations that you might get from that? Yeah. And I think one of the, um, just a, a quick um, side point, I think the challenge is that the, you know, the tempo training can be quite different for different people and certainly if it, if people are basing it on the you know the lactate threshold you know we just we just pap- published a paper towards the end of last year showing that depending on how the lactate threshold is calculated you can get a very different power output so i think you need to be you know if people are out there reading the paper papers you need to be very careful that you're comparing apples with apples in in terms of the the tempo or, or threshold training. I think you know Stephen's um, work kind of says that most athletes avoid doing too much of that sort of tempo threshold training. And I think and our we haven't done a lot of research on the on the cellular adaptations there, but I think you know the research out there does does support trying to avoid exercising at doing too much at that particular intensity. I think the only, um, I guess the, the only caveat I, I would ask is we're only talking about, you know, the physiological adaptations here. And so I think, you know, that tempo work can be quite hard. So that maybe for a, a po- podcast with someone, you know, a sports psychologist, but uh, talking to coaches and athletes, I, I think there's a, a role for that very tough psychological, you know, tough psychologically type of training to improve some of those psychological aspects. Mm, yeah, and so uh, that, that this is actually an interesting topic because I uh, talked with some people, like for example, one interview that comes to mind is uh, with. Uh, Matt uh, Fox from uh, Australia, like you, who uh, runs the Sweat Elite website, and he spent a lot of time in Kenya, among others, training with the Elliot Kipchoge's running group. And uh, when he uh, discussed their typical training week, it just seemed like they were doing a lot of tempo type uh, training, very much not a polarized model. Uh, So uh, more pyramidal, so they still obviously did a lot of low intensity and high volume but uh, most of their quality running and there was quite a lot of it came at that tempo to threshold type of intensity and and even looking at what uh, a lot of the 
World Tour cycling teams are doing. Also, anecdotally, again, from an outside perspective, it looks like they're doing a lot of that. So that's just why I'm, I've recently been very interested in this and going back and look at the, the polarized training research and see what sort of groups that they've done that research in. Because I think that the tempo training seems to still be very prominent in many uh, like elite sports settings. But I guess it might very much relate to what the specific event that you're training for is and what the demands of that event uh, is because the demands of the marathon is very different from cross-country skiing which is much more variable with uh, the terrain and uh, and uh, surges and things like that and also the fact that these days in cross-country skiing uh, you might be a specialist at the sprint distance which lasts two to three minutes and but you also want to do well in the 50k if you want to do well in the in the oral world cup and and bring home a lot of olympic medals so uh yeah it's a it's a fascinating topic always to to discuss this uh yeah but then, anyway the, uh, right, right i was going to say that the, i think yeah the fascinating thing is that there's definitely yeah i think it's great to look at elite athletes and i think you can find examples of people who are doing lots of, you know, almost contrasting types of training. So I think you'll you'll find examples of very successful athletes who do a who quite closely follow, you know, the polarized 80-20 model. You'll find examples of elite athletes who do a lot of high intensity interval training, you know, and much more than the 20%. And then you'll also find examples of of people who do a, a lot of tempo training. And I, I think the um, you know one of the things we're working on is I, I think one of the difficulties is making sure that we're talking about the the same thing and I and I think you kind of mentioned it in there you know it appears that the type of training that that we're that they're doing and I think you know there's lots of what people are calling the different thresholds and training levels or domains whichever term you want to use can be different from different pe- you know between between different researchers or different training groups and so i would say that you know, what we've seen is that there's exercising below the lactate threshold which would probably include some of that that tempo training i think you can still do um you can still get quite high volume training by doing that type of training yeah exactly and for elite ironman athletes for example even their first lactate threshold uh, which uh, in Siler's research would be considered low intensity training that's actually pretty hard for them considering the level that they're at or you know not hard but something that if you are to go out and do two times one hour race pace intervals race pace might be right at lt1 and it might feel like almost like a tempo workout but it could be classified as low intensity training in Siler's research yeah exactly and i think if you look at you know the different some of the 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 thresholds for the german rowing models and and the australian cycling and and rowing models as well then they would they have typically there'll be two training zones so level one in that instance which is below the the first lactate threshold is really recovery and um, you know cool down warm up type training, and then we have level two and level three, which are both below the lactate threshold. So I think there's more work to be do, done there to have a you know to be to be nice for people to be on the same page and with the same terminology. So I would um, I think 
some of that training, I think, can still fit into the the polarized type of model. I, I think what I would be, you know, in, in sort in some ways, kind of blending the two models is I would be avoiding doing too much training close to the lactate threshold, but you know, really close to the lactate threshold. But I think if you're you know, five or ten percent below the lactate threshold. Some people would call that tempo training, but I think you could, I would still put that into the the high volume type training. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, one follow up, by the way, on what you mentioned earlier about the differences in in lactate threshold testing. Uh, do you remember off the top of your head what sort of differences you saw depending on the protocol used to assess the lactate threshold? Yeah, we were using fairly well-trained um, runners. And I think from memory, you know, there was something like 150 watts difference from the, the you know, from the highest calculated value to the lowest calculated value. So the, um, and we made some recommendations in that particular paper. The, the first author is um, Nick Jamnick. Um, we made some recommendations in that paper, but I think it's a it's an important consideration, and there's I can't remember we calculated the lactate threshold using something like thirty you know thirty different methods, and so there's sometimes people talk about the lactate threshold as though it's one magical threshold, but it can actually vary quite a lot depending on how the athlete or the particular lab has calculated it. Yeah. I've seen this recently in an athlete that I coach that uh, got some results that uh, were absolutely like really making no sense at all. But it turns out that it was because of the protocol uh, used in uh, in the software that his triathlon club were using for for the testing. So actually, the uh, the old eyeballing method seems seemed to work much better for us in in that instance. And I think that's you know, uh, a real good. I mean, I'm a scientist, but the for whatever reason, you know, sometimes I think you do need to have experience in doing lactate threshold because sometimes, yeah, you can see that sometimes you can get just for whatever reason some strange data, whether the analyzer has done something funny or there's some sweat gets into the the blood sample. So there is a like in a lot of these things with with athletes, there, there's a little bit of art to the science as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So on this topic of volume and intensity and training adaptations uh, to to the two, not necessarily one against the other, but uh, what would you suggest are the practical takeaways from what we've discussed so far? Yeah, well, I think um, the couple of things I would say is, so, so I think there's there's lots of different ways to get to the same point. So I think, you know, the um, yeah, there's no magical training intensity. I think it's important to to get um, a little bit of um, across the the different training intensities and and volumes. I still believe that the volume is critical is you know is critical. So I think the yeah, I think the yeah, I think Stephen's model is is pretty close in terms of you know, approximately getting that that polarised 80-20. I agree with you is that I, I think sometimes the the level one, at least how it's calculated in some of Stephen's papers, is possibly a little bit too low. And so I think that 
including in that um, in that high volume component, that eighty percent. I think some of the some of the training that some others might describe more like tempo training can also be included. And I mean, some of that above at level one, you know, people can maintain that for ninety minutes, one hundred and twenty minutes. So I think those sorts of durations can be quite comfortably placed into that um, that eighty percent. Um, from what I've seen, I, I think, and I know I said different people do it, but I, I wouldn't be doing too many training sessions at around about the lactate lactate threshold. And I think that's where you know trying to trying to spread the the training across those different volumes and intensities is important. And I think the the other thing that I've noticed with any with any good athletes that I've worked with is I think they're really good at monitoring and recording and then reviewing the type of training. So I think one of the the big benefits of of whatever approach that an athlete takes is then reviewing it at, at the end of the year and being able to see, okay, this year I spent, I distributed my training this way and I got my best results or I plateaued and I didn't improve. And then being able to go back and you know, modify the training based on the on the season's results and the type of training that they've been doing. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Very great. Um, one follow up on what you just uh, talked about with the Stevens research. When when you talk about eighty twenty, do you talk about number of sessions or total duration? I tend to try and do it more in terms of training. In, in what I would say, t- training volume. So in that way, I, I think um, I think the duration can be misleading. So if we're doing it in the laboratory, but what we typically do is try and get, if you think of it something like an analogy as in, in strength training, where you might, um, you'll take the number of repetitions and multiply it by the weight. So if you're doing you know, six repetitions with with a hundred kilos, then that might be you know, equivalent to ten repetitions with sixty kilos. So you're getting a a volume of weight lifted. And so I tend to we tend to apply the same sort of approach to endurance training. So what we typically do is take the intensity and multiply that by the by the exercise duration in the actual training session. So that way, you know, um for argument's sake, you know, a twenty-minute high-intensity interval training session isn't the same as a as a twenty-minute um, high-volume L one low-intensity training session. Yeah, so you would score that as uh, like a twenty-minute uh, level three, or uh, let's say call it like in a free zone model, uh, zone three type uh, interval. So a total of twenty minutes of intro- high-intensity intervals would score for example 60 points or and then versus 60 minutes of low intensity would score the same amount of points is that sort of what you're getting at there or yeah exactly and and you know we when we do it in the laboratory it's it's a little bit easier so what we'll typically do is we'll multiply the percent vo2 max times the duration so if um you know if someone did uh intervals and they might get 30 minutes at 100% of VO2 max, then you could get 300 points, you know, units or whatever you yeah. want to call it, 
that particular yep. training session. Whereas if you did, you know, 60% of VO2 max, then that would be 50 minutes would be the equivalent. So 50 minutes and you'd also get 300 points from that. So I have seen, I have seen some people do exactly what you said and give one, two or three points, or sometimes people give a higher point. So maybe one, three, five points, depending on the, on the zones. So that I haven't seen any, you know, scientific investigation into, into the validity of, of doing that way. And I think probably one of the, one of, I I think that's a, if you don't have something better than that can be a, a nice approximate. But I guess one of the, the limitations of that approach is it means that everything in in level three is being scored the same. Whereas if you're working you know, close to the bottom of level three or the, the, the top of level three, then that's obviously the intensity is different and it's going to be um, the um, the stress of that particular work workout will change also. Yeah. And and then the idea being then that uh, you would accumulate roughly eighty percent of your training volume calculated as per you just described, but eighty percent of those you points, whatever you want to call them, would come from low intensity training. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So then it's the looking at the the points. So um, so sometimes I think it gets a bit confusing. So yeah, I, sometimes I've referred to that as like a training volume score but i think that does confuse people so if you wanted to say um you know use it as some sort of points method then that's what we would typically typically do so not based on duration but the combination of um duration and intensity to give a point score yeah so i mean that's uh similar to the the training stress score model that a lot of people are using do you have exactly, and, yeah. but that's generally based on on functional threshold power what are your thoughts on uh, on on that model this is a complete different topic that we didn't prepare but uh, but if you're happy to yeah. talk about it then this is actually uh, something that comes up quite a lot from the listeners so so i would be interested to hear your thoughts on the training stress score model and and also the metrics that it uh, generates like the uh, the chronic training load and an acute training load and how people might be using them. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, I, I'm. I think it's it's really hard to get an accurate measure of the of the training stress, and I think because the the, the I think you know the different types of training do. I, activate different signaling part, part, you know, pathways in the muscles. So I, I think it is, it's really challenging to, to compare them. But I think you know, where it is useful is when people are reviewing their training. And I think you know, some of the examples you mentioned there is that people can get an idea that if in a year or in a week I accumulate this much training stress, then I get good adaptations or I find myself you know, going overreaching and getting fatigued or whatever. So I think the it's hard to get there's never I don't think it's going to be possible with different individuals and different types of training to get a, a perfect measure of training stress. But as long as people are using the same method, you know, week in and week out and, and year after year, what it does do is it allows them to accumulate this historical knowledge of 
of what tends to work for them and then it allows them to to um, use that for a base to to manipulate or modify their training as they go forward. Yeah, I think you hit on a couple of really, really important points there that uh, as a coach, I I definitely uh, 100% agree with with that approach. It, it is a, a good tool for certain things, like, for example, benchmarking one year against another or one key race against another. But uh, the trap that I think that a lot of people, amateur athletes in particular, fall into is believing that more training stress score equals better. But as you say, uh, different uh, signaling pathways are activated by different types of training. And and the trap that a lot of people fall into is that they think that that low-intensity training is useless because it doesn't give them a lot of training stress score. So why waste an hour doing an easy ride when, when you'll only get 30 TSS from it if you can do a 70 TSS ride or even a 60 TSS by just making the, the session moderate? But then at the end of the day you you lose out on a lot of that uh that lower intensity training that 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 is highly beneficial and uh and necessary if you want to maximize adaptation so yeah i couldn't couldn't agree more with what you just said yeah and i think it's important that the yeah i think i think like you said i mean i think you know sometimes there can be that um you know train hard kind of concept and you know if you're not falling off the, you know, lying on the ground on your back for half an hour after a training session, you haven't done a, a quality training session. But from our work in the lab, like I said, we're definitely different types of training stress will stimulate different adaptations. And we've seen that recently where we looked at some of the the pathways that are activated. And we looked at some of the cellular pathways that are activated when you do an exercise session below the lactate threshold. And when you do an exercise session above the lactate threshold, and there's not that much in common between the be, between the two. So I, I mean, I think you're getting. I think there's quite specific adaptations to the various types of training, and it's important to not just be looking at yeah, you know, like you said, getting as high a training stresses as possible, but getting the right amount of stress in the different training zones. Can you describe that in a bit more detail, what uh, the different cellular adaptations and what signaling pathways are for the different uh, levels of intensity? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that are, that are happening there. So one of the, and this may be part of the, the reason as well. So, I mean, one thing that's, that's changing is obviously the fuel use. So if we're using the the um, levels that are more common to Stephen Sealer's approach, so when you're in level one, you're mostly you're going to be predominantly using fatty acids as your fuel, and then around about the the first lactate threshold, ventilatory threshold, around about then you're probably going to get a, a peak in your fat oxidation, and then. As you start to increase lactate in the muscle, that's going to feed back and decrease the fatty acid, you know, fatty acid contribution, and you're going to start increasing the glycolytic contribution and get further increases in in lactate. So that's probably part of the part of the signaling process as well. And so we know that you know fatty acids and lactate and some of the other changes in, in metabolism stimulate some of these different signaling pathways. So I think that's why exercising in these different training zones, you're going to get different changes 
in the metabolic signals within the muscle, and that's then going to act downstream to to stimulate different training adaptations. And so it seems like, you know, I think, you know, and I think this this is where it does start to match up a little bit, is that that low-intensity training where you're predominantly using fatty acids seems to drive increases in mitochondrial content and also drives increases in fat metabolism. So that sort of training, and those two seem to be related. So people who have a greater mitochondrial content seem to be better able to use fat as, as an energy source. As you increase the intensity, then you're starting to get um, different signaling pathways activated and um, different adaptations being stimulated in the muscle as well. Yeah, that closes the loop pretty nicely. Uh, so a thing related to the the high, higher volume training and increasing mitochondrial content that I know you researched is uh, twice a day exercise. Uh, can you discuss that mm. a little bit? What what effects we see there, and also practical considerations that we might need to uh, to make when when it comes to training twice per day, which is very common for even a lot of amateur triathletes. Yeah. So the we've just published two studies. So one of those when we so the first one was just looking at the response to um, that one day of training with with two exercise sessions. And we saw that when there was one one high intense one training session closely followed by a, another training session, we saw a much greater activation of some of these signaling pathways. And we're still we're still trying to work out exactly why. But I think part of it is that one of the one of the things that happens when you're exercising is you can kind of think of it as in your 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 um starting to you're decreasing the fuel sources within the muscle so obviously things like muscle glycogen get decreased and you're also using up some of the the fatty acids in the in the muscle and we know that this kind of for want of a better term a nutrient deprivation is a really powerful signal to activate some of these signaling pathways so i think what you're doing when you're exercising twice a day is that you're um, you're you're exercising your your muscles when they they've been nutrient deprived, and I think that augments the the training stimulus. One of the challenges is though, and if you've done it, it's <laughs> it's really hard. And I think there's also the um, we haven't done this particular research, but. Yeah, there have been studies where if um, people want to specifically study overtraining, then they quite often do do twice a day training. Um, so I think it it can be a powerful stimulus, but I think it has to be used very carefully, and um, so as to to avoid overtraining. And we have seen that beyond just the single response. Probably there are studies by you know John Hawley and and others has done some excellent work in this area, showing greater improvements in in fat metabolism when um, this twice a day training is is applied a few times a week for a few weeks. So I think that there's some evidence that it does work, um, but I think you have to be careful, and I think you need to be especially careful with what you do the day after this type of training. 
So we're just doing another study at the moment and we're seeing that um, that the participants are less able to do a high-intensity interval training the day after that they've done this type of training. So I think, again, you need a, a good coach who can, if you want to try some twice-a-day training, to make sure that it's very carefully periodized into the training plan. What specifically did you have for outcome measures when you have studied this? Did you measure some sort of marker of uh, signaling or was it performance or something else? We've done both. So we've done, um, so the the first study, which I think it's online but hasn't been published, was just as looking at the signaling. And what we saw there was a, a really powerful increase in the signaling when uh, when we did the twice a day training and so i mean it's very clear from the from the results you know without you know you don't sort of need any fancy statistics just looking at it you can see that there's very large differences between the conditions and i think you know your point coming back to your point's a really good one is that our signaling doesn't always match up with what you, what then happens to performance and so when we then looked at performance after three, just three weeks of doing this type of training, we didn't see any beneficial changes, any differences in performance. And I'm pretty sure John Hawley's stuff hasn't seen any, um, um, change, any differences in, in performance either. We do see greater increases in, um, fat metabolism and some of those sort of adaptations. And John has also seen greater increases in, in a marker of mitochondrial content with the with the twice a day training i think the you know the important caveat is that all of the training studies including ours have been quite short and have been limited to i think you know 3 or 4 weeks so it may be that that longer time is is required to be able to to see any any performance benefits with this type of training and uh, has the control group done the same total volume of training as the experimental group here or is that different between the groups? Yeah, in these studies, we t- we always try and control the control the volume of training, and I think that's also one of the things that um, that uh, John in particular has looked at is that when um, when some participants are doing twice a day training, the the group that's doing the twice a day training isn't able to. Um, to train at, at as high an intensity as they would normally be able to to do, so that may be one of the that may be why the athletes aren't able to um, to train as hard. So that may be part of the compromise is that you're getting greater signaling, but it might come back to the you know the training volume is that the athletes end up either doing less intervals or slow, slightly lower intensity when they're doing that second high-intensity interval training session. Mm. This is uh, a really interesting topic, especially, I think, for triathletes, because we have to to do swim and bike and run training. So uh, if uh, you're an, an ambitious triathlete, whether it's amateur, but especially if you're an elite triathlete, like you're going to do twice-a-day sessions almost every day. And uh, But then these considerations are things that you, that need to be taken into into account obviously like and finding a good trade-off between maybe maybe trying to plan in 
only once per day sessions before you have your key intense sessions or something like that if you're for example focusing on one particular discipline let's say it's the swim and you want to have hit a couple of really good swim workouts per week then maybe the day before that swim should be a once per day training and there these are just some thoughts that are racing through my head as i as i hear you explain this um are there any other considerations that that come to mind for you when it comes to planning this for example with regards to to nutrition both uh, between twice per day sessions but also after that second per day session to so that you can recover for the next day's training yeah we've um and i guess you know Again, coming, you know, John Hawley and Louise Burke had a nice paper, I think towards the end of last year, talking about, because we're kind of getting into, you know, training with low carbohydrate, um, talking there. So, so they talked about how to periodizing it. So I think the, the having the low carbohydrate, if you, because of the pri- previous training session, you can end up having low muscle glycogen stores before the, the second intensity interval training so that that may limit some of the performance there what we've been seeing is that we've just um completing a study at the moment and that it seems to be that consistent with with most of the classic sports nutrition recommendations is that if you delay the carbohydrate ingestion after these high intensity training sessions then performance the next day is impaired. So I would say that especially, um, and, and I think you know, it's consistent with the current guidelines, is that if the athletes are doing this twice a day training on occasions, then it's probably important to get carbohydrate quite quickly within that. Um, if it is doing that type of training, it's important to get um, the carbohydrate within that, post, that post-training window so that um, they can rapidly replenish their muscle glycogen stores so that they're ready to do the, the training, to do another solid training session the next day. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I know that your wife is trying to get to you, so I'll, I just, I'm just going to cover one more topic here before we yeah, go to the rapid-fire questions. Just <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so keeping on that same theme, what about uh, the impact of nutrition, whether it be in workout or, you know, uh, training low and things like that? What impact do you know of, and how have you seen in own studies uh, on on signaling and uh, and performance adaptations? If you've done that research, yeah, and I think this is interesting. It's where there's sometimes a, um, I guess a, a miss, a little bit of a a mismatch. So I think the the training. The training low idea, so training with low muscle glycogen stores, is um, is really powerful to increase the signaling. But what um, what we don't seem to be seeing is that necessarily being translated to performance. And I think part of that is because sometimes with the if the participants, you know, the the athletes are, are training with low muscle glycogen it's probably affecting the quality of their training session. So I think the, the recommendations keep uh, evolving, but I think you know, some of the, the current idea is to, is to maybe use the, the low muscle glycogen type training for when there's uh, the low intensity training because that, 
the it may feel a little bit harder, but the partic- the athletes will still be able to to complete the training session even if they even if they've got lower than normal muscle glycogen stores. So trying to I think focus on the the quality of the training session and using the using the low muscle glycogen type training when it's not going to affect the training quality. If um, as I said, if there's going to be a a hard training session the next day, then replacing the muscle glycogen stores quite quickly. So taking carbohydrates, you know, within that first hour or two post exercise, that seems to be important to ensure that a quality training session can be done the next day. Yeah. I interviewed John Hawley as well on uh, this topic, among others, and his recommendation was to to do the train low uh, type of protocol. At generally, at most, twice per week, he said that any more than that, and it might be too much, even if you keep it to the low-intensity sessions. So that that was his point of view on, on it. Would, would you agree with that, that there is a limit to how, how often you should do it, even if you if you stick to the low-intensity sessions? Yeah, and I think that's um, you know one of the things I like about these sort of podcasts is it you know it always generates some good research ideas. And so at the moment, I don't think I'm not aware of any research that has you know have looked at that whether you know whether you can you know what is the optimal number of train low sessions to to get the best adaptations. I think my guiding principle would be to ensure that you're getting good training quality, and so. If um, and so that probably two two to three is probably going to be the most that you'll be able to do without it interfering with the quality of the high intensity training sessions that people want to do. But I think um, that's what I'd be looking for is that, and it, it may change with different periodizations. But as long as you can maintain the the training quality, the the high intensity training quality, then. Um, then I think you can probably do two, three, or even four low um, low muscle glycogen training sessions. Yeah, got it. And is there any other research that you're working on that, or have been working on that you want to discuss or just mention so that we can keep up to date on what's uh, what's coming up in in your uh, your neck of the woods there? Yeah, sure. So I think yeah, a lot of our research. Um, and I think yeah, some of it's still, um, you know, we're doing at the moment. Just trying to think of anything that's uh, about to come out. But so I guess you know, my most of my lab work, the group of my my research group is trying to optimize these endurance adaptations to training. So we're looking at different training prescriptions, and but we're also looking as we just spoke nutritional strategies, and we've also tried looking at um, cold water immersion post-exercise and also training in the heat to see if we can augment the the training adaptations and I think you know what I think we're increasingly seeing and I think you know it makes sense is that the you know it's the training that's obviously the the most important aspect and I think you know we haven't really seen using cold water or heat or these other manipulations I think are, are turning out to be less important. I think you know sometimes people like them because they're kind of a you know, a quick fix to have some nutrient or to add some cold water or some some heat. But I think you know 
our focus is going to remain more on the, the training quality. And I think, you know, as I said, what we want to do is to look at some of the research gaps that you've identified is how do you, how does, how do you put these different types of training together to get the best, not only molecular adaptations, but performance adaptations? And so a lot of, a lot of research might be comparing low intensity training to high intensity training, but that's not how athletes, you know, train. Obviously there's a, the mixture of those different training zones that go into a, a week or even a, a day. So that's our next couple of projects is to look at what's the, you know, how do we, how do you put together a, a training week with both, you know, low and moderate and high intensity training to, to get the best adaptations? That is very exciting to hear and I, I, good to hear because, uh, yeah, the training, the actual training is the bullseye if we want to improve as athletes. So, and, and I think there are so many questions and gaps in the knowledge that when we've talked about quite a few of them already over the course of this interview. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to see what what's coming out of, of your lab when, when it comes to designing the training and, and getting the most adaptations. Uh, so where can we keep up with uh, with your work? Uh, what is your lab and what are the social media handles and other outlets where, where we can follow what's going on there? Yeah, so the um, I think, you know, these days social media is probably the, the best place. I mean, I work at Victoria University and we do have our skeletal muscle and, and training research group. But the, um, you know, updating the, the web pages is always slower than I think social media. So all of, you know, any of our new publications we'll, we'll put on, on Twitter. And so my, my handle there is Blue Spot Science. And so if there's any new publications, people can definitely find them there as well as, you know, the research of a lot of the other people that we've mentioned. I quite often retweet their, their work if it's related to this particular area. Perfect. And uh, to wrap up this interview, I have uh, a few rapid fire questions for you. Just one sentence uh, or less to answer these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Or physiology. Yeah, I'm actually going to, if I I may give you a completely different one. One of the books I read read recently, which is brilliant, I think, is a, a book called Factfulness. Yeah, and I've heard about that. It's on my to-read list, actually. Yeah, really. I think. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed it, and I, and I think it's. I mean, what it it's basically, uh, you know, in many respects, it's kind of you know like the fake media type thing. But it just it's really, and I, where I think it's relevant is it's it's about interpreting data, and so I mean, you know, what you can quite often see is you know, especially <laughs> you know, in politics or whatever. What you will see is that you know two sides can interpret the exact same, apparently the same facts, but completely different. So it just goes through. I think you know it points out a lot of things that you quite commonly see reported on, and just says, "Look, this is um, you know how to how to get to what the the real facts are, and not what people are telling you are the facts." Yeah. Uh, the next one is, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I think the 
I think especially in this line of work is that you need, and I think in any line of work, and I've seen this when I, you know, I read about what um, other people have done, is having, I think you need to, is blocking out your time. So and I, I try and have, you know, a few hours each day where I don't look at any email, I don't um, respond to email, I don't answer texts or anything like that. So I think, I think avoiding distractions is is key so you can get quality work. So and not looking at you know not looking at turning off all my notifications so that you know I can wake up and do four or five hours of work before I'll get distracted by um, any emails or texts or whatever it might be. And finally, who's somebody in sports or academia that uh, you look up to? I think, I mean, I've, my bias is, I mean, I, I like um, good scientists who are also doing, um, you know, research that has good application. So I think, you know, a few people, somewhere like Professor Keith Barr, I think he does excellent stuff and I think he's got a, I say he's got a, he's a really good scientist, but he also has a has a way of communicating what that what that research means to to other people. I think someone like Trent Stellingworth in um, Canada as well, another really good scientist, but a, a good scientist who who understands um, athletes and and how to communicate scientific findings simply and and clearly to the to the athletes and coaches. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, uh, David, for uh, coming on this interview. It was uh, really great talking to you and, and hearing all your knowledge about these topics. So really appreciate it. No, it was a, it was a pleasure to, to chat to you as well. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. And as usual, you can find the show notes on thattriathlonshow.com. There we will have links to some related episodes, guests that we mentioned during the interview, like Stephen Seiler, uh, John Hawley, Professor Paul Larson, and uh, you can go and listen to those as well. Also, of course, links to the uh, the paper, the crosstalk uh, that we mentioned, exercise training volume is more important than training intensity to promote increases in mitochondrial content. That was the basis for uh, quite uh, a large part of this discussion that we had. So you can go and check out that original uh, paper from the show notes or from the episode description. One general update, and this is probably the last episode that I will, or the second to last episode I will promote this, but uh, I'm looking to fill two roles at Scientific Triathlon, uh, one project-based and one uh, part-time recurring weekly task. The first one, the project, is we are looking to revamp the scientifictriathlon.com website uh, very soon and we need some professional help to do so. So if you are a web developer working with WordPress websites, then uh, please contact me, michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K to get more information. And the second role is uh, the podcast show notes editor. So simply, we need somebody to... Uh, to take over the role of turning the audio content that uh, I produce here on Mondays in the podcast episodes and turn that audio into well-written, well-structured text-based content on the website. So that is the show notes editor role. Again, email me if you're interested to get more information. 
Next Monday, I interview Dr. Charles Samuels, and the topic is sleep. It's a very interesting one, especially uh, Dr. Samuels' take on wearables and how they probably do you more harm than good if you're tracking your sleep and trying to get objective data from that. So uh, stay tuned for that. Stay subscribed. Of course, in the meantime, there's a Q&A on Thursday to look forward to. As you are preparing for your races in 2020, if you are in need of any help or guidance, do check out scientifictriathlon.com and the training plans and coaching services that we offer there that can help you get the most out of your 2020 training and racing season. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get an individualized hydration strategy for your next race. And get 15% off your order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. Or get your first box or tube for free with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Go and check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And get 20% off your order with the promo code TTS20. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.